Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about you. That's right. Our team meticulously combed through the mountains of junk mail that comes with a public facing email address and found some of the best questions you've submitted to us here at the Feelings Lab. So today I'm taking those questions and I'm making Alan answer them. And by making, I of course mean asking politely. Uh, we're also going to take a look at some of the latest news in the world of emotion science. Alan, did you know lobsters have feelings? Hmm. I didn't. Did you know yeah. that? No. Didn't know. <laughs> I still don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, I don't know if that makes them uh, more or less delicious, but we'll get into that uh, and more stories just like it in a little bit. Before any of that, uh, what would this show be without my co-host? I already brought him in with the lobster thing, but please welcome a friend and why the hell not my inspiration. The one and only Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, wonderful to see you as always. How are you doing, man? You doing all right? Doing great. That's great to see you too. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, okay. Now I know uh, I always say I'm excited, and I also always say, but this time I mean it. But in my defense, for this particular episode, this has been uh, a long time in the making. We've been uh, accumulating all these audience questions, and I've been saying for, for months now, every episode, let us know what you're thinking. Maybe we'll answer them on the air, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I think I'm speaking not just for myself, but for the audience as well, for the listeners, when I say this is a very exciting episode, we're finally going to get to hear some of your thoughts, Alan, on what they've been writing in about. Uh, I'm pretty stoked for that. Did you get a chance? Have you looked at the questions yet? Are you going in blind what's what's your method over there have you seen them already i think i've seen some of them but i haven't mm. seen them all nice very good that's what i want to hear okay so very good uh before we get to the questions let's jump into some news how do you feel about doing some news first you want to do news with me alan is that something yeah, let's, let's do news let's do news i think we should get you know we should <laughs> i say this as if i'm not going to edit it later but we sh i'm going to find like some royalty free like a news stinger like a bulletin so like did it did it like a little sound <laughs> just to add to the drama of this moment breaking very dramatic okay first up this is an article uh, i dug up from science Daily. Daily.com. Headline is Research Shows the Role Empathy May Play in Music. So this caught my eye right away. I'll read a little bit and then we'll get into it. So uh, it says here, can people who understand the emotions of others better interpret emotions conveyed through music? A new study by international team of researchers suggests the abilities are linked. The findings were published recently in Emotion, a scientific journal of the American Psychological Association. The study was led by Benjamin A. Tabak, Tabak. I apologize, Benjamin, if I've butchered that. Uh, assistant professor of psychology and director of the social and clinical neuroscience lab at SMU, and Zachary Walmark, assistant professor of musicology and affiliated faculty at the Center for Translational Neuroscience at the University of. Oregon. Okay, I got one more quote, and then we're going to jump into discussion here. Uh, they said, we thought it would be interesting to study whether people who more accurately understand others' thoughts and feelings might also be more accurate in understanding what musicians are intending to convey through music. Similarly, we wanted to know whether people who tend to feel the emotions that others are experiencing also tend to feel the emotions conveyed through music. Uh, before we go any further, I don't know how large or small the emotion science community is. Those names ring a bell. Do you know those guys, Alan? Do you know those dudes at all or no? Never Say the names again. <laughs> it was, okay, here we go. Here we go. I scrolled back up. It's uh, Benjamin A. Tabak, 
and Zachary Walmark. Rings a bell. Rings a bell. Rings a bell. All right. Let's. I'm going to get a bell sound effect <laughs> as well. Early results are showing that yes, uh, they are in fact linked. Alan, you had a chance, I think, to take a look at this. I sent you this earlier to read. What What do you think about the study or, or, or what they found here? What were your thoughts in reading through this particular piece? I mean, it's good. It's a great study. I think that really aligns with what we see a lot in our data. And I haven't really formalized it, but you know, there are people who um, just been started studies who label facial expressions and vocal expressions and music, and they do it all. And some people are really granular <laughs> and uh, and kind of thoughtful and nuanced about it. And some people are just like, this kind of sounds happy or sad. Uh, so I think that might be a big part of it. Um, there's probably some separation you need to do between emotional granularity. So uh, I think they did some analyses on this too. Mm -hmm. uh, probably have to read the study more detail. <laughs> but, uh, and, and like, what is it that's, you know, that's accurate? You know, yeah. what's the accuracy of a judgment versus like, I'm just, you know, spend more time thinking about it. Maybe it's also motivational. I think a lot of it is motivational. People are really interested in, in emotion sort of inherently and, and want to spend the time thinking about that and kind of deciphering it. Well, it's so funny. You mentioned the, 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 the accuracy, right? And that feels like something I've heard come up multiple times on this show. It's like the holy grail is how do we know we're getting accurate data, accurate information? How accurate is this person's assessment? What, what is missing? What, how, how many years away are we from having the exact accuracy that you dream of at night? What, what, is, what is limiting us from knowing 100%? Yeah, I mean... Like accuracy means so many different things. And when you're studying emotion, people get confused about it because emotion judgments are really judgments of something that's intangible. So just some, exactly. something that somebody's feeling, right? And there's, there's no ability to know whether you're right or wrong. Even like the, the person's self-reported emotions might not be uh, incredibly accurate. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but there are ways of kind of conceiving of accuracy. Like if you uh, presented this expression, to you know, a wide swath of the population, what would be like the modal response? Like, yeah. like somebody could say, right. like, I think this is how this is perceived by the average person, or I think like this is the range, of, this is the distribution of how this was perceived, or I think this is the distribution of self-report um, that you know somebody or a distribution of people might might say they felt in response to a bit of music, or like the, um, they they say they're feeling while well, they're expressing that thing or making that facial expression. I think there's there's a sense in which there is uh, accuracy to that. Yeah. Um, but you, I think that it, rather than do like the one to one mapping uh, between like a single expression and a single set of feelings, I think it's uh, it's important to think about the distribution overall yeah. um, and, and acknowledge that there's variance across the population, but there is also a distribution you can like, identify and capture. Half the people will say this, and half the people will say this, and that's the full. Maybe that's the full answer to how people respond to something. Moral implications aside, do you think it will ever, I'm going to ask you a really silly question here. Do you think it'll ever be possible to, in the same way that we, um, do you ever think it'll be possible to get data directly from uh, an individual's brain via some kind of crazy implant? Like, will we ever decode the, 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 the synapses and the firing in such a way? Like, is that ever going to be within the realm of possibility? Or is that like Star Trek level stuff of just like, whatever happens in here, <laughs> we're only ever going to know so much. Like, what do you think okay. like, in our lifetime? Yeah. Let's, okay. Just uh, like, let, let's say you could measure every single neuron in the brain and yes. perfectly accurately. So you had a full description of everything going on in the brain. 
you you still would have to rely on what somebody says they're feeling to link like the activity in that map of neural activation to feeling, um, and you still wouldn't know if what that person meant by saying they're sad is the same as the next person. Yeah, um, and so you couldn't with absolute certainty say that um, you know this person is sad in the way that the other person they're feeling right. the same exact emotions. Like it, it's impossible unless uh, yeah. Here's what I think you could do. Ooh. <laughs> is if you figure out a way that you could connect your brain to their brain. <laughs> Loving it. Keep going. Keep going. Um, Preferably by some kind of device that looks like a pasta colander with Edison light bulbs sticking out of it. If we can get that going, I'm on board. So, okay, we connect my brain to their brain. Okay, it could be that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it looks like, and I don't think it's just like I'll handle the aesthetics. You worry about the science, okay? So, pasta calendar would be cool. There we uh, go. Okay, so I'm wearing that. I'm connected to the other person. Keep I going. think it's just some kind of organic thing. But anyway, like let's say you could do that, and you actually were able to feel what the other person was experiencing. Then you could start to study, like, what is it that what is the exact correspondence? So we would. Okay. Okay. So if I'm following you, not to cut you off, but I'm, I'm so happy you're going with me down this path. So we would in, we would need another human brain to connect directly to that brain to interpret it, right? Is that what you're saying, basically, to like kind of sync up? Well, I, like you would need to know if that person's sadness is the same as the other. Sadness right. is kind of like, like that person's joy is the same person's the thing as the other person's joy. Like, is it the same feeling? In order to feel that, you would have to have a device that made you feel their feeling, each person's feelings in turn, and you could identify for yourself subjectively whether they were the same thing. Otherwise, okay. like there's no there's no other way to compare the subjective. Item. Got it. Okay, good. And I could spend another hour on that, but let's keep going. We got a lot of stuff here. Uh, the last thing I want to do on this story was there was this line, uh, uh, Professor Tabak says towards the end, we also hope uh, that our work will highlight the value of conducting interdisciplinary research that spans the science and humanities. And so, Alan, please forgive my ignorance of all of your work here, but in your career, have you conducted research in a similar way insofar as the interdisciplinary aspect, combining science and humanities? Yeah, I mean, I, I think right now, fundamentally, psychology has just been, it's almost more humanities than, than science. That might offend some people, <laughs> but it shouldn't, <laughs> because why, why should we be offended to be humanities, right? Humanities mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's um, certainly an attachment to history. Like, if you take an interest like class, you learn a lot about all the different, like William James and the behaviorists, and, like all these people, like, you wouldn't learn so much about the history of uh, physics in a physics class, except that somebody's name is attached to a formula. And then maybe you learn a little bit that way. Yeah. Other than that, just like you actually have a cumulative theory to test. I, I just, I think psychology is um, more in the idea stage um, and, and kind of like philosophy where you discuss like ideas and who had them uh, <laughs> more often, often than like the cumulative theories and definitive tests of hypotheses. Um, and so, yeah, and, and psychology is deeply informed by philosophy, um, yeah. and particularly with emotion, there's there's a lot there. Um, yeah. uh, I'm in, learning. Yeah, <laughs> in an emotion class, you, you'll learn an emotion science class. You'll learn about uh, Aristotle's ideas about emotion. You'll learn about Darwin. Darwin was a philosopher, per se. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 deeply a humanities-oriented discipline. Very cool. All right, let's keep moving. We got another awesome story here. This next one uh, is from nature.com. 
com. And Alan, you came across the story and sent it over. The headline, Why Video Calls Are Bad for Brainstorming. Uh, and I'll get into how I feel because we just came up with that whole Colander Edison Bowl brain connection idea over video. But you know what? That's neither here nor there. Let's keep going. Let me read a little bit of the story. Uh, around the world, video meetings have become the new normal. But what impact could this have on our work? According to new research, one important skill is impacted by the restrictions of video calls brainstorming ideas. But why is this task in particular negatively affected? And could other skills actually benefit from virtual communication? Uh, this was a super cool piece. I watched the video uh, and and we'll have links to the accompanying story and, and, and video and all that stuff in the episode description so you guys at home can, can check it out as well. Alan, what about this one jumped out to you that you said, oh, we got to talk about this and you sent it over. Why, why did this jump out for you? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a super important topic because... Mm -hmm. Right now, so much work is being done over video. And so if there was an effect of video communication on creativity, the world would be less creative as a result of that. That's a pretty, that's like an important finding, right? <laughs> um, I love, I never, I always, I like to think that I'm a relatively intelligent human, but I never extrapolate <laughs> things to the extent that you are. <laughs> yes. So when you guys drop something like that, I'm like, oh crap, that's right. Everything <laughs> would be less awesome. Well, I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I, I didn't that's, even think. That's why it's in nature. I love studies yeah. that are, it's, it's like not a super complicated study. I mean, it's pretty big, thousands of people, but fundamentally, it's not the most in, like insane methods. Um, so what's amazing is that when a study like this gets published in nature, it's, it's because it's asking a really important question. I love yeah. studies like that. Yeah. Um, the analysis they do is that actually, uh, they, their explanation <laughs> is that um, the reason that video communication uh, suppresses your creativity is because you spend too much time looking at each other and not aware. Yeah. Which I, right. I don't know if that's like... <laughs> okay. I'm going to stop you right there because actually that jumped out to me as well. So I'm going to throw to a clip from this piece really okay. quick uh, for those listening and watching. And you can see that and then we'll, we'll come back and jump into this discussion. There was one difference between virtual and in-person conversations that did seem to make a difference. And Melanie spotted it by tracking people's gaze. Are you looking at your partner? Are you looking at the surrounding environment? Or are you looking at the task? And it's interesting, again, if you ask people what their intuition is, they think that there's more social connection when we're in person. And so we probably engage with our partner more. Um, but we found the exact opposite. So we found that in the virtual condition, people are looking significantly more at their partner, almost double. And because of that, it's at the expense of their broader environment. Previous research has shown that people are more creative when they're less focused. When I'm communicating in person, I have the entire environment as our shared environment. Wherever I look, that is going to be part of my partner's environment too. However, when we're talking virtually, our shared environment is pretty limited to the screen. And we thought that this could lead to more focus, which should hurt idea generation because we're actually the most creative when we're unfocused and free. So rather than online conversations being inherently always better or worse, it could be that we need to adjust how we talk based on what we want to achieve. 
All right. So I stopped. I, I cut you off to the throat of that because what was so interesting to me, and we've only ever scratched the surface on here uh, of how powerful and important one's gaze can be. And this was something that I wasn't, I wasn't even much like uh, how you extrapolated the data into like the effects on all of it. I wasn't even thinking about uh, gaze in this way, but uh, when I started to think about it, yeah, an individual's gaze can be super important in communication. Sometimes I'm pretty sure my dog looks at something just to get me to look at it. You know, how significant for you guys, Alan, has it been tracking someone's gaze, understanding the meaning behind it and stuff like that? I want to ask that. And then I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, uh, the the significance of it to them and their findings. But how important has it been to you to, to keep track of that, of where we're looking and what we're doing? It, it definitely signals something socially. And I think this gets really into the the reason, I think, for their findings, which is that um, when you're looking at each other, you're kind of signaling, I'm uh, in the midst of thinking about what you're saying. Um, and we're sort of to the point. Um, whereas when you're looking away, you're, you're, you're kind of signaling to somebody, I'm in the midst of thinking about something else. Um, and it gives you an opportunity to break away from like, the linearity of the conversation and, uh, and kind of bring in other ideas. But it's, a, it's because it's like an important signaling mechanism, I think. And that, that, that maybe is not, I mean, they, they see it as like a signal of focus. But right. I think even when you're looking away, like you're still focused on something. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> was that the part that you started to, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say, take issue, but you were like, I don't know about that right before I cut you off. Was it the idea that if your gaze drifts, that you're not focused? Is that the thing that you were saying? Like, I don't know if I uh, align with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, uh, I think what I, well, I think that it, it is a way of explaining the findings that mm-hmm. is not, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's just, yeah. um, that, uh, the, they, they, they need to think about sort of the social significance of it a little bit more than uh, thinking about it in terms of like purely cognitive. I think their explanation is purely cognitive and not social. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, creativity is also something that comes out of a certain kind of focus, different kind of focus, but it's, 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 uh, it's, um, it's, it's more focused internally on ideas that are being produced in your brain and focus on ideas that are coming from the environment. That's mm-hmm. the difference. Um, and uh, we're able to do that, you know, when you're a person. I think the key thing is my explanation. And, and this is something probably worth testing. Is that when you're in the same environment as somebody and you look away, it's very clear to them that you're not looking at anything specific. Because mm-hmm. they're in the environment with you and they know that there's nothing there. Okay. But when you're on video chat and you look away, it looks like you're distracted. By yeah. Else, right? I think that's, that's why you can't, you can't look away. And Alan and I have run into this numerous times where he allows me to stare off into space hours <laughs> at a time. And, <laughs> and it's where I derive a lot of my creative ideas from. But I assure him, I'm not ignoring him. I'm not. It's funny. They tap on. They, they do mention that in, in the clip, the, uh, the significance of a communal space and how uh, uh, and they don't really dig deeper into it like you just have there. But you're right. I didn't even think of that. If we're in the same space, I know what it is that you're looking at, even if it's not me. Versus now, if you were to just look off screen, I'll sit here going, what the hell is he distracted by? I'm talking to him right now. <laughs> and I could see how that could impede uh, creative progress and collaborative progress. But um, yeah. very interesting. Okay. Any other thoughts before we move on to our third and final story and then get to some questions? You good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. Our third, I couldn't be more excited. I teased this in the opening. This one was from bigthink.com. And again, all the links will be in the description uh, and show notes so you can check them out for yourself. Uh, Here it is. The inner life of a lobster 
do invertebrates have emotions? Uh, and this is near and dear to not only my heart, but this show's heart. Every episode in the first season, I asked Alan about animals and emotions. So let's let's talk a little bit about this article. Let me read a bit. Many people agree that dogs, as well as cats, chimpanzees, and other mammals have feelings. Uh, most would argue that these animals experience a whole suite of emotions from joy to distress. In other words, we consider dogs sentient, meaning they can have feelings beyond simple pain. But if you ask anyone to consider the emotional life of a hermit crab, you will probably get a more skeptical response. The inner lives of invertebrates like hermit crabs recently made news overseas when deciding whether to add invertebrates to its animal welfare bill, the British government commissioned the London School of Economics and Political Science to, I love everything about this story, to assess the evidence supporting invertebrate sentience. The LSE team reviewed more than 300 scientific studies on the topic and came to a firm conclusion are you ready for this hold for dramatic pause just wait just wait they have a firm conclusion alan are you ready alan are you ready i'm ready I'm okay ready. <laughs> <laughs> there is solid evidence that mollusks and crustaceans are sentient the government took lse's advice and confirmed that the scope of their animal welfare bill would extend to most crustaceans, most including crabs, lobsters, and crayfish, as well as cephalopod mollusks like octopuses and squid. <laughs> I mean, what more can you ask for? This story has it all. First of all, I'll never skip a chance to say the word cephalopod mollusks on this show. If it presents itself, I'm going to take it. Uh, second, this has my favorite things. It's got animals. It's got emotion science. It's got British government officials seriously debating the validity of what lobsters feel. And I've said it many times on the show. I love that. Um, what, Alan, first blush, what do you think of this story? You seem skeptical, <laughs> sir. What do you think? I'm not skeptical. No, You're not? I, okay. okay. First of all, I'm asking, like, like what, why is the default that lobsters don't have feelings? That's the question. I mean, oh, I would okay. just assume, I would have assumed that lobsters, that everything that has, you know, motives and flexible thoughts like cognition and has an environment that has to kind of weigh different considerations um, and make a decision every those things like uh, i think it's a very that, good point <laughs> it's a very good point they do they make decisions they make calculated adjustments they make movements based on their environment they, that those and those decisions must have some level of emotional weight who knows what that spectrum is but that must exist right <laughs> right how else do they make those decisions Right. I mean, you don't know, right? You, you'll never know for sure. But if we're, if we're just going by like whether something makes decisions, I think, I think this, what, what the study reveals is that when you really watch something um, and living its life, you start to realize it's smarter than you thought. Mm, I think yeah. that is a really key finding. Um, yeah. But uh, not surprising. Um, I think it's not surprising. It's always fun to have it confirmed. Here's a, here's a little yeah. anecdotal evidence. And I don't know. Uh, uh, if this is even applicable here, but I have very good family friends um, and uh, they live uh, on Martha's Vineyard now. And every once in a while, I'll get to I'll be fortunate enough to go out and visit them and see them. And uh, typically when you're out there, what do you eat? You got to have at least one lobster dinner. Right. And uh, the, the my friend's mom, who uh, infinite wisdom and one of the kindest souls in the world insists that before we 
boil the lobsters. She holds them upside down and gently strokes their underbelly and what she calls hypnotizes them so that it's less traumatic when she puts them in the pot. So I've been a part of a circle that has firmly believed in lobster <laughs> emotion for a while. Uh, so it's just nice to have those suspicions confirmed from British officials, uh, government, wow. British government officials. I mean, how much more uh, official do you get than that is what I say. You gotta hypnotize your lobster. You have to. That's the takeaway from this episode, everybody, <laughs> is hypnotize your lobsters. Um, you just said a moment ago, we'll never truly know. Here comes another patented Matt Forte insanity question. If, there, if there's evidence to support the scientific community believes, and as you said, if you observe long enough, we know there's emotions. How how many decades away are we from, or will is it truly forever impossible for there being an emotion map for the animal kingdom, similar to the emotion map that you guys have built for, for human existence. I know we're just now getting used to that existing. It's brand new, but do you think it would ever be possible uh, to, to do something similar to, to better understand that of the animal world? And I yeah. understand why that's a crazy question, but I would like to know a smart person's take. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Darwin tried to do that and yeah. the expression of emotion of man and animals, he was really talking about animals a lot. Uh, talk about birds and monkeys and mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe talk about lobsters after the chef, but um, like, uh, that, well, two things. One is you, you, you there's a kind of self-report experience best, which unless we find another, a way to get um, animals to communicate with us, maybe dolphins, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. We're not going to be able to ask yeah. them other things. Um, but uh, what Darwin described as you know, purposeless behaviors. And he didn't mean they had no purpose. He just meant they had no functional purpose other than communication. And I think that gets misunderstood sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, he was, his aim was to look at uh, so primate, primates and if they, if they had a, what was seemingly an expressive behavior and it didn't serve a, a kind of um, a behavioral function or a, a function other than just communication, then uh, he considered that an expressive signal. And you can mm -hmm. map those out. And he, I think he really set the stage for mapping those out. Yeah. And that's what he tried to do, not qualitatively, but yeah. qualitatively. And I think we can. I think we should. We should yeah. have that. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's lots of studies of... In fact, people started it with, with chimps, actually. Um, and you can do studies of chimp facial expressions. And I saw one that's seven different dimensions and compared it to... Some of human, some of the human facial expressions, and saw parallels there. Um, so yeah, no, I think that, that that needs to be done. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Amazing. Well, those were the stories that jumped out this month. Obviously, there's a million more, but we only got so much podcast here. So uh, we'll put links and info to all of that stuff in the show notes and description. So you, like I said, can read along and watch for yourselves at home. Uh, but the time has arrived. Let's go ahead and let's finally do it. 20 some odd episodes, eight, nine months in the making. Alan, let's take some listener questions. Uh, I can't wait because I'm almost positive. None of these are for me. So, <laughs> uh, so let's go. I, and I got to say, I was actually, I was pretty impressed with a lot of these, right? I don't know about you. I was impressed uh, I, I, with some of these questions. I thought these were really great questions. When you open the window to the world with no screen, anything can fly in, right? You put a call out to the universe like we have, you're going to get your, uh, your jokers, your funny guys and gals, your, your, <laughs> your ne'er do wells, your chuckleheads. And we saw plenty of that. We did, uh, but there were uh, multiple hidden gems in there. So, no more delay. This first one is from Ashley. Uh, and Ashley writes, Hello, I'm Ashley. Hi, Ashley. I'm an undergraduate at Harvard 
Ooh, let me pick up that name she just dropped real quick. Harvard. <laughs> Humble brag, Ashley. And uh, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Feelings Lab podcast, and I just made fun of you. I'm sorry, Ashley. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being a fan and watching the show. All right, Ashley goes on to say, data exposure and privacy are obviously becoming a huge concern for users of any technological platform. And I was wondering how we can address the privacy risks of emotion AI. And we've talked about uh, privacy risk before in the show. Alan, I'm going to sit this one out. I'll let you take it. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a really a frequent question that we get. Mm -hmm. It really speaks to legitimate concerns people have about their privacy and AI-based surveillance and you know, what's going on with their data. Um, and I think you know, when you're adding more data into the equation with empathic AI, it adds to that equation. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, before I delve too far into kind of the surveillance use case, which, you know, very small, hopefully, <laughs> um, swath of the uses of emotion AI, empathic AI, face recognition, and so forth. Um, maybe maybe bigger for face recognition. Before I delve too far into that, I just want to make the distinction that, you know, privacy is probably not about whether your data is being accessed by more algorithms, unless you're really, truly concerned that there's like an AI that's so smart that you actually worry about it judging you or mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's about who like humans have access to your data, right? right? So, you know, a lot of your data is being processed by algorithms um, and you don't care. You've thought about it. Like, uh, uh, for example, algorithms to improve the photos that you take on your phone. Like every time right. you take a picture on your phone, you're actually taking a bunch of pictures in sequence and algorithms deciding what's the best one. You like that. People, users want it. Yeah. Um, Algorithms that improve your results on Google, like you search Google for pretty like intimate things, but some people do <laughs> intimate things, and you want them to be kept private. And you know, hopefully they are. I think they are, um, and not being seen by other people. Um, and so, and Netflix recommendations, all kinds of things. Um, and, and, and so, like, what's the privacy concern? You know, with another algorithm analyzing that, it's not really. That's not really the concern. The concern is like, what if this is leaked? Right. Um, or what if somebody right. who does, I don't want to have access to my Google searches has access, right? It's the age old, what if this <laughs> falls into the wrong hands? Or, it's, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's sort of thing. An entity doing surveillance or whatever. Like, your first concern when somebody has your Google search history is probably not like, are they analyzing the sentiment of my Google searches? Oh, no. No, my first concern is I've got to get out of the country. Yeah, I've got to leave <laughs> immediately. That's my first concern. Is yeah, no, I, I think whether someone's analyzing the sentiment of it is like the least of your concern. Maybe they get like another drop of data from that. But like the, yeah. like the like semantic value of that is like more what the concern is or like, if it's face recognition, like where you were, more important probably than what you were expressing at a given time. So it's not, you know, Empathia does add to the suite of surveillance technologies. And that's yeah. something we can, we should be concerned about. And my view is that like, uh, that's a misuse of the technology that like, if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, neither empathic AI nor face identification, um, nor language transcription should be used to, mine that data um, and so, like use it against you. Like yeah. it, it should be private by default. They're very clear that like, surveillance is it, you know is, is a bad use case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very anti-surveillance. Yeah. Um, but you know that being said, if there's just another algorithm that is being used privately on your phone and like nobody sees the output of that, but you but it's used to inform things that are helpful to you, like that's not a privacy issue really at all. And any right. 
you know, it's the same thing as like a compression algorithm. Like it's being used to help you store more photos. That's like the fact that the compression algorithm sees your photos, if you're not worried about that as a privacy leak. So I think that's sort of how we need to think about this issue. One of the things uh, from the moment we first met and, and one of the things that um, endeared me to Hume and what you guys were doing is how much you mentioned and made a point to uh, say we are working on establishing the ethical guidelines for how this stuff is going to be used and and focusing so much on the ethics of it. And that was always such a priority from the second I met you. And that that gave me good vibes. And I was like, all right, well, let me let me see what's going on with these people and feel them out. But I knew from the beginning because of that, because I, I don't hear a lot of that. I hear I see a lot of that in headlines. It's buzzwords and stuff. But you guys are putting in the work and it's a very big focus. And I know you put a lot of effort into making sure that uh, that those those guidelines are are being established and, and and that's a very big priority for you guys. And that's been the same. That's been true from day one, long before you met me, right? Like it was found, the Hume was founded on that. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah. Was, I mean, yeah. when we created Hume AI, we also created the Hume initiative, which is a separate nonprofit. Yeah. With, like the commitment that anybody using what Hume AI was putting out to the world would have to comply with the Hume initiatives guidelines, which we're going to be, and are, have now been voted upon. Oh, really? By, um, by yeah, by like ethicists, um, by AI researchers, uh, by cyber law experts, by um, health ethicists, or independent people who know, know with us interest in human. That's how we determine um, what are the supported use cases and what are the unsupported use cases. The ones that we actually say you cannot pursue with Hume, and we uh, have defined surveillance as an unsupported use case. You cannot use our technology to pursue it. Um, and cool. uh, things like manipulation, and we define that um, in in our guidelines. Um, so uh, you shouldn't use people's data against them, essentially. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, unless, of course, uh, it's like somebody who's misbehaved on a social media platform and they're bullying somebody, and then you can say like, oh, well, probably should should use this to make sure there's less bullying. <laughs> uh, so. and, you, and, and look, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I mean, you want to talk about slippery slope because then it's like, yeah. well, what if the, what if the generally accepted bad guy feels like he's being bullied, but it's like, you're just trying to correct his, the air and help him. It's such a slippery this slope. This is a really big, and so you always need to have an appeals process. Yes, um, exactly. And it should be humans to moderate it. And that's never going to change. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, like there's just an enormous amount of, this misbehavior that happens. And if you want to catch it in time to actually protect people, you can't just rely on human moderators. Yeah. It's like not, it's not even feasible. Man. Um, so you need what, to flag it somehow. What, what a wild problem humanity has to solve. It's so crazy. Uh, all right. Great question, Ashley. Thank you so much. Go. Um, I think it was it pilgrims. What's the, do you know the Harvard mascot is, I think it's the pilgrims. I could be wrong. No, it's a, it's a color. It's just a gold it's, it's color? The crimson. The crim Harvard oh, crimson. crimson. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where I got Pilgrim's. I know Yale is <laughs> handsome Dan. I know that. I know they have That's, handsome Dan. Yeah, we have a, yeah. I want to be a bulldog. Yeah. Yes. I know that from Gilmore Girls. So, yeah. I went to art school. I don't know why I'm trying to drop sports knowledge here. Um, but thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Alan. Uh, let's go on. We got another one from Julia. Uh, Julia writes, hi there. My name is Julia from Berkeley. Is there a healthy level of emotional expressivity that is conducive to long-term emotional well-being? Uh, 
we've that is such a very eloquently succinctly worded question julia very smart uh um Alan, what do you think are the long-term benefits to regularly engaging and expressing our emotions? Uh, is there a bar we should aim for there? How, how do you think about Julia's question? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, definitely expressing certain emotions um, is beneficial and doing it routinely, like expressing gratitude, laughter is good for people, really good for your relationships, um, and uh, not suppressing negative emotion, not suppressing sadness. Yeah. Um, and confronting it. I mean, this has uh, been hypothesized for a long time. I'm not sure that there's really a kind of definitive proof. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, yeah, I think it's pretty apparent. Um, and, and different emotion regulation strategies have been compared. So if you do feel sad, suppression is bad, and things like reappraisal are good. That's pretty definitive. How, how fine is the line? between healthy expressivity of emotion and someone who just loves the drama. How, how do you, <laughs> how do you do How do you know you've expressed enough? And if I don't stop, I'll have expressed too much. And I will, <laughs> people will talk about me behind my back as a result. <laughs> how do you do Do you know, do you know where that line is? Have you found it? Um, you know, I don't express my emotions, Matt. So <laughs> you went the other way. You, you let the pendulum no, swing I, too far in the I, other direction. I do. I, 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 <laughs> well, here's, I, I think some people are more expressive than others, and that's for sure. And yeah. I don't think that they, they think that, you know, in some cultures, being really like intense about your emotions is uh, not as socially acceptable. Um, and, and so, um, in those cultures, uh, and, and, and being content is sort of the main thing. Like, uh, in, in, in uh, for example, in like Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the, the goal is contentment. Yeah. It's not like pleasure or, um, you know, amusement or whatever, or the, uh, whatever the euphoria. Um, in Western cultures, we, well, again, call it cultural cultures that uh, we associate with romance languages and so forth um, are generally much more in favor of pop, like high arousal positive emotions. Mm. Very good. Awesome. Awesome question, Julia. Thank you for that. Uh, I don't know why seeing the word expressivity written out really choked me up in the middle of that one. There. <laughs> uh, assuming it's the same Berkeley, say hi to Dacker for us over there. Um, we got time for a couple more. The next one is from Moses. Let me pull this up here real quick. Moses writes. Oh, I like this. Moses doesn't waste any time with any uh, uh, familiarity saying hi or anything like that. Or no, Moses starts. It's just just one word opens this this whole thing. Bias, and then a, and then dash. All right, Moses. I like it. Uh, a person of business, right to the point. Bias. I've heard that people in different cultures express emotions differently. Yeah, uh, by using English emotion terms, are we introducing a Western bias? That's a really cool question. All right, thank you, Moses. So what do we think? By using English emotion terms, are we introducing a Western bias, Alan? Yeah, I mean, this is a really important topic for emotion science and empathic AI, um, you know, and we gather data from around the world. So we actually address this in like a computational kind of data-driven way. And that's been our approach. Um, uh, so, you know, rather than sort of taking a few pictures and getting people to label them in different cultures, um, we actually uh, take, you know, thousands of uh, responses to stimuli of people, actual people, and what they're actually feeling at the time and what they say their expression means with their expression um, and report what they were expressing. Uh, and they do it in their own language and like emotion, English emotion terms, uh, Spanish, uh, 
Mandarin Chinese, you know, uh, Amharic. We've looked at a lot of different languages. Um, and they use emotion terms and, and terms like smile and scowl, laugh and cry. Um, and about 75% of the time, uh, the English emotion terms line up with what people say, like experts say is their most direct translations okay. in different cultures when they're used to describe um, expressions. Uh, and that's like when you're looking at globalized culture, well, somewhat globalized cultures. I mean, we're almost everybody on earth, basically. Um, but about... 25% of the time, there are like subtle to moderate differences in, in what the expressions mean in terms of how they're linked to emotions. And so there, it could be misleading uh, in some cases to say, like, this is the emotion term that's linked to this expression, in addition to the fact that, like, you don't want to describe an expression in emotion terms and then have people think that you're trying to attribute that emotional experience to that person when people know that it's a social signal authentic, it can be posed, or it can be used for communication and all that. So there are all these subtleties that we're sensitive to. On the other hand, like if you don't use emotion terms at all, it's really hard to capture the meaning people take away from expressions or even just like characterize a facial expression at all. Like a, right. like a scowl is just this really and it turns out that that's just not a very specific word. Uh, it can mean pain or anger or any number of things. But like the, the expression people associate with pain is so reliably distinct from the one people associate with anger. Um, and so it's really, uh, it's tricky. It's tricky. You, you kind of have to use emotion terms if you want to get at the specificity of expressions. Right. Then we train algorithms on those terms. Um, and it's not that we are trying to predict what people are feeling, but like the terms, the set, the suite, the, the distribution of terms people use to label an expression. Uh, and we try to, and we, we use methods that, yeah, basically take out the different confounds. And, um, and then we take those algorithms and now the outputs are proxies, like basically like anger in this algorithm. We have one for facial expression, vocal expression, and they don't always align. So it should be very clear that this is not attributing a feeling because like there's different modalities, not saying the same thing, yeah. but it's a really good proxy for what is a pattern of expression. I'm, uh, I'm curious. Uh, if you, if someone came to you right now and they said, Hey, we want to, and I'm going to get as specific as I can with my limited knowledge of the actual work you do. But if someone said, Hey, we want to leverage uh, the data sets that you formed and we want to do something in three completely different cultures in three completely different parts of the world, would you say, okay, our data set has been trained to address those biases? Or would you actually say, okay, well, we should establish three separate data sets unique to each region so we can get the best data possible possible so yeah, yeah that, this is a really good question so i mean it depends on what they're doing like they that what our data sets do is they take as many different dimensions of expression as possible and they say like okay this is the anger expression that's recognizes anger in u.s china venezuela india ethiopia or it's mm -hmm. like most direct translation to hard chinese spanish um and, uh, you know, this expression means contentment in this country and, um, and uh, you know, relaxation in this country. And maybe those are close. And then in this country, it means like, uh, something slightly different. It means uh, like excitement. Uh, I don't, there isn't a question like that. <laughs> but like we, we, have, we have certain dimensions that actually um, don't have the same meaning in different cultures. Right. But they do serve as a really good embedding of that same facial expression independent of who's forming it, their gender, 
their ethnicity, their age. So you have this amazing embedding of expressions. And then you have like what might be different meanings, but you're not interested in like depends on what you're interested in, right? In right. doing, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're predicting whether somebody is um uh let's see, like whether somebody's feeling well or not, um, then you probably want to collect some data points on what well-being looks like in those different cultures. Right. But now you have the expression, the facial expression, the vocal expression, the language they're using, and you can you can train a model that's really simple, maybe because we have a really good embedding to go from like what are the what's what are the different indicators of well-being to well-being, mm-hmm. basically? Um, and it could be a different model in each culture, but like you don't need as much data to train that because now you because you've started with something so rich. Got it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Moses. Another great question and great answer, Alan. Uh, all right, let's do. We got one more question because uh, we're coming into the home stretch here. Let's get one more in. It's from. Imran from LA. Okay, this is a long one. AI is in everything now. I'm reading about a bunch of other emotion AI companies. Like, oh, I'm not going to read this list. Uh, they list a bunch of other companies. They can start their own podcast. Uh, here's the question. Uh, Seth, about, okay, here it is. How is Hume different from the other emotion AI companies? Pretty straightforward question. Thank you, Imran. All right, Alan. Uh, I can't fathom a person better suited to answer this than you. <laughs> How is Hume different from other AI uh, emotion AI companies? Oh, man. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of differences in sort of our approach. Um, and so, you know, there, I think it's, it, it, you have to start with the science, right? Um, yeah. So for a really long time, there's, a, there's, there's emotion science, there's affective computing, which is sort of the field of computer science that trains these algorithms. And the way they've sort of functioned for a really long time is let's take faces um, and we already know sort of what the emotions are that are expressed in these faces because some guy in the 1970s said it was uh, happy, sad, anger, surprise. Good uh, job, some guy. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He didn't really say that, but that became became like the norm of how you categorize facial expression. And they focus on the face because the motion science field for a long time did focus on the face. But they kind of, like, affective computing assumed these things have been solved. um, And then they brought in people and they said, all right, let's sort these expressions into these known categories. Um, And that's how we're going to train our algorithm. Or we're going to use facial action coding system, which is another scheme in the 1970s for how you label faces, but it's a trained readers. You train for a week. And the, uh, the premise is that now you can identify all the different facial muscle movements by looking at somebody. So I could look at you and I could say, like, you're our orbicularis oculis active or whatever. I <laughs> yeah. beg your pardon? Which is <laughs> <laughs> like the squinty bottom of the eye muscle that you I've make been seeing smile. someone about that. I'm aware of it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but like, humans are not actually like, good at doing this, even with a week of training. Um, and it turns out you. These, these codes are like, difficult to get, even, you know, they're kind of sensitive to age or people with more wrinkles in their face can get labeled with more of these codes. Yeah. So these are kind of older ways of doing things. And the way we've come about it is we've decided, look, instead of assuming that these were solved problems, we should actually address these problems from a data science perspective from the first time. And the algorithms themselves that we're training are like scientific models um, that we're actually using to derive the meanings of different expressions. Different approach, we come to different conclusions, like the fact that there's, you know, over 27 different dimensions of facial expression that 
uh, you know, at least, you know, 20, about 20 of them are pretty similar in meaning across all six countries we've collected data from and counting. Um, and there's, you know, some moderate, you know, subtle to strong uh, cultural differences in how people interpret the other seven, but we have an embedding of the other seven. Um, and, uh, you know, these are all distinct dimensions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the basic six, like if you categorize things in terms of those six emotions that people focused on, they turn out to capture 30% of the space. Um, and, uh, you know, that's maybe pretty generous. Um, this mm-hmm. is often based on posed facial expressions. And you go out into the world, most people's expressions are not that intense, uh, anger, sad, Happy, they're like, like confused and boredom and so forth. Anyway, so so we're, we're doing things a little differently. Uh, we have um, uh, algorithms to capture much more, and uh, we're doing it with experimental methods. So okay, um, instead, uh, the, the the main uh, two approaches people use. The main approach people use for a long time is let's take some images from the internet, give them to uh, professional graders. And the raiders will say, you know, this is the anger expression that, you know, been taught to label and this is surprise. But perception is really influenced by what somebody's wearing and their gender and ethnicity and so forth, P- particularly for some expressions like, uh, a triumph expression, uh, really depends on, um, if this is a person in a sporting jersey, jersey or, <laughs> you know, or, or if it's a, it's the, the, the pride expression, pride, whether something's recognized as pride really depends on, whether somebody's wearing sunglasses, like everyone wearing sunglasses is right is being proud. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do instead of doing that is we actually gather data on what people say their expressions mean in real time. Hmm. We use experimental paradigms to evoke a whole lot of different expressions. So we have different people, different cultures expressing um, the same kind of distribution of expressions because we've carefully designed the experiment um, and labeling their own expressions. Um, and now uh, we can say, you know, this is, you know, regardless of whether this person's wearing sunglasses or, or not, like this is the expression that they're forming. And the algorithm actually has to ignore wow. the sunglasses. <laughs> uh, so the algorithm wow. is specifically trained to ignore these other confounds, their perceptual confounds. Wow. Now we have this more like powerful way of, um, uh, of measuring not just facial expression, but expression in the voice. We've moved on to many other modalities. That's another key distinction. And so how they fit together when somebody's talking, speech policy, language, vocal bursts, like sighs and laughs and so forth, and facial expression, how they all fit together. Um, and now we have more powerful algorithms. So we decided that we should have ethical guidelines for how they should be used. And so I think we're the only company, maybe the only AI company that has that kind of commitment where like we're like, there's an independent nonprofit with independent people who vote on these guidelines. And we say, we're legally going to commit. Yeah. <laughs> he uses these tools wow. to adhere to the ethics guidelines. Uh, so, and they're transparent. So it's not like, you know, a lot of companies might have their own internal guidelines, but they're not public. So if you're a user, an end user, you don't, you can't actually see those. You don't really know um, how these things are being worked out. Because with us, you can look at the human initiative org and actually view the guidelines yourself and hold us accountable and hold other people accountable for using our solutions um, in compliance with those guidelines. Okay, let me see if I could sum it up. Let me see if I got this. <laughs> so, so there's two two major pillars I picked up here. One 
is uh, and this is really going to summarize all, all of your. Let's <laughs> hope I don't mess this up, but I think I got it. I think I do. Number one is that your data is, is it, well, we're going to say better, but it's better because it's more accurate and the ways in which you've gathered it are unique. And it's not just one way. There's many different ways in which you've come about the data that you have. And and so your data is incredibly powerful and, and valuable because you've, you've amassed it in such a thorough and unique and special way. That's number one. So your data is more accurate because you're not just looking at one thing, you're looking at all the things and you've identified things that other people didn't think to look at. Does that number one, am I close? Yeah, I think adding that together with experimental control is really critical because we can actually use experimental control to train a model that's not biased by the kind of confidence that people are Okay, so then two and a half pillars. Uh, that plus the experimental control. And the other one is, and, you know, universe, call my bluff here, but I don't know, I haven't encountered anyone else as actively, openly, and voluntarily saying to the world, hey, let's make sure we're doing this the right way. We even have an independent body helping us stay on track. And that, to me, seems very unique and special as well, is the, the depths and the lengths to which you've gone to ensure the uh, ethical-ness of all of this. <laughs> is that, that was the other pillar. That was pillar two for me that I pulled out of that. And I think that's yes. unique to you guys as well. Uh, yeah. did, I do, did I do all right? Yeah, totally. And, I, I, and I'm not sure, you know, Emotion AI is another term people use. I don't like the term emotion AI because we're not building AI with emotions. We're not building the first AI to recognize emotions. We're building the first AI where humans come in and say, this is how it responds to emotional behaviors. Um, but uh, but like other companies, other emotion AI companies uh, might be have great intent. You know, with, yeah. They might in practice follow the same guidelines, in which case, you know, why not just sign up? It's yeah. like it doesn't cost you anything, and you can you can actually say you're, you're following these guidelines. People can hold you accountable. But I think that it's really meaningful to to have the guidelines out there um, and show people uh, that this is what we say, what we're going to do, what we're yep. not going to do with this. Um, and I think that's a really good model. Well, you also future-proof yourself. You can't end up like Facebook in 15 years and have some major leak because you guys are transparent and you're putting it all out there. There's, <laughs> there's no dirty laundry to air out. It's all right here. This is what we're doing. Keep us honest. This is how it needs to be done. And uh, I think more people are going to respond to that. That's the way it should be. Kudos to you guys. I also love that I sat on your show and told you, the founder, CEO, how your company works. Um <laughs> Who the hell am I? Thank you uh, to all of our uh, listeners and fans that wrote in questions. There were uh, so many, and, and uh, we picked just a couple. I'm going to, I had a lot of fun. I don't, Alan, do you have, I think you had fun. This was fun, right? Great time. Yeah. I'm going to suggest something bold. Okay. And perhaps we should do this. And you be honest. You let me know how you feel. I think we should do it maybe once a month. I think we got enough of these coming in, and I'd love to do this again. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think we should do this more often? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Maybe if we do it more often, uh, we'll get even more questions. I, I think so. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to wrap things up. We're in the home stretch here. Uh, we spent a bulk of today answering some of the best questions. I thought it'd be fun to, to just kind of rapid fire through some of the worst ones. As you may recall, <laughs> I say quite frequently, ask us anything or just write in and say hello. And well, as to be expected, some of you took that quite literally. Here we go. Uh, West Coast Jim literally just wrote, hello. Hi, Jim. Uh, Liv wrote in and asked, where are my keys? I'm sorry, Liv. I do not know. Alan, have you seen Liv's keys? 
I have them. You have them. Yeah, I still have them. <laughs> that, we'll talk about ethical issues. All right, uh, Liv, I will FedEx you your keys. I am terribly sorry. I don't know what to do with Alan. Dorothy wrote in. She wrote, no question, just letting you know the weather like you've asked. It's 71 and sunny here in Hawthorne. That's really nice. Thank you. Uh, appreciate that, Dorothy. Nick writes, this is great. Consider it. Three words. Are you okay? Yeah, buddy. I'm doing fine. Alan, are you okay? Most of the time. There we go. Alan, we're going to have a conversation. You're stealing keys. You're only okay most of the time. You and I are going to have an off-camera chat. Uh, 99%. Very good. That's a good percentage. Um, that's going to do it. Alan, I had a lot of fun. Uh, we've established you've had some fun, 99% fun as well. No, it's 100% during the course of this conversation. 100% from from yeah, Alan. That's fantastic. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, fingers crossed. Uh, send us some more questions and you'll hear them just like this approximately one month from today. Uh, that's it. Thank you to those for listening and joining us and watching. Uh, you know what we think. I want to know what you think. Keep the emails coming. Uh, we had a lot of fun going through them and I'd love to see a, a bunch more. So just go ahead and keep sending weird stuff to us. That's uh, the feelings lab at Hume dot AI. One more time. T H E F E E L I N G S L A B at Hume dot AI. And like I said, if it's a really good one, uh, we'll answer it on the air in just a little bit. And if it's a really bad question or just a photo of a tiny animal eating tiny food, I'm probably going to share that as well. So no rules over here. We're making it up as we go. Uh, thank you to my co-host and friend, Dr. Alan Cowan. Uh, so much, buddy. I appreciate you being here with me and doing this. And thank you to you, our listeners and uh, viewers and wh what have you out there for sticking around with us and providing all of this content for another fun episode of the show. We'll be back next week, but until then, farewell for now. From all of us here at the Feelings Lab, I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there.